0: So, tonight we're going to consider the possibility of perfection. We can begin just with a simple question. Is it possible to be perfect? Is it possible to be perfect? (laughs) In a competitive academic environment, I suppose that this animates many of your efforts, right? Is it possible to acquit yourself most admirably when it comes to grades, and research, and matriculation, and graduation? But more broadly, is it, is it possible to be perfect as a human being? Is it possible to fire on all cylinders, to exhaust what it means to be man and woman? <clears throat> so we have to come uh, to grips with the biblical testimony, because as we read in Scripture, the standard is high. So for those uh, you know who peruse the pages of the Gospels, you come across in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters five through seven. The Sermon on the Mount, which represents in kind of rarefied form, uh, in its most uh, concrete expression, what this moral transformation is which Jesus wrought. And there, at the end of chapter five, it's like verse 47, we find the injunction, "Be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. "Be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." It doesn't say like, "Be ye therefore decent." Be ye, therefore, good enough. Be ye, therefore, a swell fella. (laughs) It says perfect, right? So the goal of the Christian life isn't to be nice or merely so or just kind of kind or to follow the rules well. Rather, the goal of the Christian life is to be like God. To be like God in a real, thorough, and abiding sense. So that's not to say that we are absorbed into God or become God after the manner of enjoying his divine nature. We don't become God in the strict sense. But yet again, we have to contend with the scriptural testimony. Psalm 78 says, you will be gods and sons of the Most High. And in his letters, Peter speaks of us being partakers of the divine nature. So we can actually share in the divine life. We can actually come to enjoy it or experience it, taste it have a kind of um, sense of what it will be like to abide with him forever in heaven. Now, when confronted with one's own smallness, or pettiness, or ugliness, or weakness, the goal can at times seem nigh unto impossible. And this is especially true when we compare ourselves to the transports of great saints in the tradition. So you can think perhaps of like Saint Teresa of Avila, who's pictured in Bernini's statue outside of the Dominican church in Rome as kind of wrapped in ecstasy. It's referred to as her transverberation, which is wild. Or like St. John of the Cross, right? Who was um, persecuted by his own brethren, who did not uh, agree with his religious ideal, and they locked him up for a period of months in a room without windows. And who, when asked by God what he would like, asked for more suffering, (sighs) (laughs) which is staggering, Or you can think of St. Pio of Pietrocina, who actually bore in his body the very wounds of Christ, the first having done so being St. Francis of Assisi. So when we look at these men and women who give such beautiful expression to the Christian ideal, and we compare ourselves and suffer by comparison, the ideal can cease to animate hope, and then it can serve only to depress or to dispirit us, Right? You're, you know, 19, 20, 21, 28, 27, 40. And what have you done with your life? Right? A kind of uh, off-sighted scientific trope is the fact that Albert Einstein had completely changed physics by, you know, before his 30th birthday. And here we are, having very little to show for our lives. <laughs> so if I compare myself to the ideal in such a way that I suffer by comparison, it can be dispiriting or depressing. So, is it actually possible to live this way? Is it possible to be perfect? Well, let's take a step back and just examine what it means to be perfect. What, then, is perfection? So, in a kind of basic sense, in an etymological sense, like, what does the word mean? So, perfection, from perfatere, which means to be made through, or made through and through. In the kind of classic medieval uh, description, it means to lack nothing, proper to one's nature, or lack nothing according to God's design. So here, we can just recount briefly, and it seems almost unnecessary, but it's, it's good just to kind of review, um, that our perfection is normed by the fact that we are human beings. right? So we're called to live perfect human life. Okay, So we are not destined to accumulate all of the perfections of the material and spiritual universe but only those which actually pertain to human perfection. So what do I mean by this? Okay, we'll start off with like kind of uh, trivial examples and then work our way up. So like we're not called to have the perfection proper to minerals or elements, okay? So you are not good to the extent that your skin is adamantine, right? Because then you would be insensible and then you would lack something proper to human perfection. So you're not like good to the extent that you are a dense element, right? You will never surpass tungsten, you know. There are denser elements yet than you. So, so that not, for us, that doesn't, you know, that's not part of the ideal. We can kind of despair of that in a healthy sense, right? But we're also not called to mere animal perfection, right? We are not called to mere animal perfection. And here, again, helpful just to pause. We are not going to be judged according to, um, you know, like our visual acuity, Right, Because we lack the vision of eagles, that does not make us deficient as man or woman. Right? So, too, we will not be judged on fleetness of foot. Because we are outpaced by cheetahs, it doesn't mean that we are bad. It may mean that we will be eaten someday, but it doesn't mean that we're bad, right? Okay? It just means that we lack things proper to other animals. And that's fine, because we aren't those other animals. We're rational animals. Okay, so those aren't especially tempting for us, except in a kind of, you know, hilarious way. Uh, But, again, we're also not called to angelic perfection. And here we get to things that are, you know, a little bit more tempting. So, for instance, angels don't have bodies, as a result of which they don't have the sensitive cognition and appetite that are proper to embodied creatures, right? So they don't have inordinate passions. They don't want too many chocolate chip cookies, right? They aren't, um, like, saddened on rainy days, they don't suffer from vitamin D deficiency, right? They, 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 they don't, right? And that's like sometimes being embodied is exceedingly difficult, right? If you live in East Campus and you have a class on West Campus, you can feel like it would be better that I didn't have a body, <laughs> right? How will I transport myself hence? Do I take that terrible bus, which I've learned to hate? Do I walk for the better part of half an hour? Do I buy a motorized scooter? Do I get myself a rickshaw and pay one of my friends? You know, like, (laughs) would that I were an angel because then I could just train my intellectual perception on a different point and I would be there, right? Okay. Also, angels don't discover, right? So angels aren't discursive creatures. So, like, when we reason, it's like, okay, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. We, We think, you know, not always syllogistically, but we think step by step. Whereas angels know all things intuitively, instantaneously. So they don't ever go like, oh, wow, that just, I didn't realize that. They did. They did realize that. (laughs) Right? So they never have to admit to ignorance. Right? They know everything proper to their ministrations and proper to the glory of God as befits their state. Okay. And again, we are not called to perfection in the way in which God enjoys perfection. So divine perfection in the strict sense is not ours to be had. So what do I mean by that? Well, God is his existence in the kind of you know classical conception. God exhausts everything proper to being. There is nothing that is that is foreign to God. Rather, all things are as so many participations in his overabounding life. So God literally lacks for nothing. There is no shadow of change. If he were to change, he would either get better and then he wasn't God, or he will get worse and then he is no longer God. So God is... Immortal, invisible, God-only wise. And that's seductively attractive, but it's not proper to us. We are limited. We are circumscribed. We are constrained by the fact of our being human. So, we are not called to these types of perfection, but we are called to human perfection. And in order to orient our understanding of what that consists in, let's consider the end for which. In order to bring to bear on our like kind of meditation, what, what our nature consists of, it's necessary to know, you know, like what, what we're made for. So the typical answer, answer for which I will not argue but just assert, is that we are made for the loving vision of God. So we're, we are made to enjoy endless life with God in heaven in a way that will bring to perfection our highest capacities, right? So how are we set apart from the beast's? We have many things in common, right? We grow, we self-nourish, we reproduce, we have sense appetite, we have sense cognition, we move about. But we also have spiritual cognition, intellect, and spiritual desire or appetite, namely will. So this is what is distinctive about us. And what is distinctive is constitutive. That's what sets us apart. And so the loving vision of God is that 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 term, that endpoint wherein we will find the object Of our mind's longing, the object of our will's striving, and enjoy peace and contentment and rest and fullness of life. So it won't be like a mere static state. You know, sometimes when we pray for the faithful departed, we ask that eternal rest be granted unto them. And sometimes we think about this as a kind of like extended vacation, you know. Like you go to heaven, Saint Peter gives you like a chaise lounge, you know, like one of these pool deck chairs, and then he gives you like a, a basket of fruits. You know, and he's like, feed yourself with these for all eternity. And you're like, okay, right, okay. So no, it's not like an extended deck chair exercise. It's something that fulfills our intellectual and volitional capacities. So it's, it's more like to operate at top speed. You know, it's like LeBron James in a chase down block. It's like, that's what I was made for, right? You see it and you're like, yes, please. Um, okay, so then how do we grow in our capacity for God? How do we grow in our capacity to see him and to love him and so enter into this beatitude, to possess it and to be possessed thereby? And this, in the Christian tradition, is, you know, how we describe the life of virtue. So virtues are just those things which purify and heal our desires in so much as they are fallen or limited or incomplete or otherwise selfish, and it actually draws them out, right? It fortifies them. It it substantiates them. It empowers them. So if somebody asks you, like, do you desire too much or too little? The answer is too little. It's not too much. We don't need to curb or, like, repress desire. It needs to be healed and trained. Because ultimately, desire is what brings us to the term of our aspirations, right? If we didn't have any desire, we wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't even have the energy to, like, click watch next episode. You at least need a modicum of desire to do even that. Right? So the real kind of magic of the life of grace is that it brings out desire, it heals desire, it augments desire, and that's just what virtue does. Now in speaking about virtues, we can describe many of them, right, which inform every capacity, every faculty of our soul. God is so generous that he gets his grace into all of the nooks and crannies of our life. right. So in our appetites, he gives temperance and he gives fortitude. In our wills, he gives justice and charity and in our intellects, he gives faith and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and prudence and art. Um, but we'll speak specifically now just to one of them. So, what is sometimes referred to as the substance of Christian perfection, or the virtue which includes all the others and brings them to their term, namely charity. So, here, uh, a brief pause. Sometimes charity, the very word and the concept thereof, can be debased in our contemporary understanding. So oftentimes we think about it just as like almsgiving, right? Uh, it's a, by charitable donations we exercise charity. Uh, but for whatever reason, it's associated in our mind a little bit with condescension, right? So charity pertains to the giving of something to someone lesser. And so for us, it would be inadmissible. Uh, it would be horrifying to be a charity case, right? But in the Christian conception, in the fullest sense, in the way that like St. Thomas describes it, charity is just love. Right? It is the divine life, the divine love poured into our hearts. It's God's own love, whereby we love Him with that love and our neighbor with the same. So it gives us the very capacity to like swim in the divine life and to actually operate in the divine ambiance. So that we are no longer, you know, like hamstrung by our weakness and limitations, our our very limited human capacities. But where we can actually like live in God, operate in God, which is like, gosh, it's like so sweet. Okay. Um, So then, what what is charity specifically? Just to describe it a little bit better. Um, Charity, the first question that St. Thomas asks in his treatise on charity in the Summa Theologia is Utrum caritas sit amicitia, whether charity is friendship, which is beautiful. And he says yes. He says, You better believe it. uh, The Latin equivalent thereof. Um, So charity is just friendship. And what is friendship? It's mutual benevolence with a shared life. So these are the kind of three elements that um, Aristotle identifies, or this is a kind of reduction of his many elements to three summary elements. So first, it's benevolence, to will the good of the other. We could also say beneficence, to do the good of another, because it's always embodied, it's always incarnate. But it has to be reciprocated in order for it to truly be friendship, in order for it to truly be charity. And then there has to be some shared life. So it's very difficult to have friendship with someone with whom you do not live, whom you do not know. You could know everything about, you know, Zion Williamson. But if you don't, like, eat lunch with him occasionally at El Forno, it's very difficult to be friends. You would be characterized as a fan, not as a friend. But then, once you get down to some serious El Forno time, and you're like, hey, man, I like you. And he's like, hey, I like you. Now we're talking about friendship. Okay. <laughs> um, so, mutual benevolence. Mutual benevolence with a shared life. Right? And, why, like, we can actually find the substance of that shared life in God. Because God gives us himself. Because we can actually share beatitude with him. And he gives us the the illumination, the enlightenment in our minds. And he gives us the inspiration or the encouragement in our wills to actually do just that. To actually have our acts come home in him. And it's actually, it's it's really beautiful. So like St. Thomas says that charity is the determining factor for our relative engagement in heaven. Okay, so what do I mean? So basically, to the extent that one is charitable... One will, be, uh, one will participate more richly in heaven. Now here I want to be careful. I'm not saying that like um, people won't be happy in heaven. Everyone will be happy in heaven. But as St. Therese sometimes describes it, all will be full, but some will be thimbles, and some will be buckets. So all will be full, but charity increases our capaciousness for the enjoyment of heaven. So it gives us a kind of sympathy with God, a supernatural fellow feeling, And as a result of which, we we derive a deeper and deeper capacity to enjoy his sharing of life. Now, here, another helpful clarification. We might wonder, okay, so we are uh, called to the perfection of charity. Is there any point beyond which we cannot uh, advance? Can charity ever be exhausted? Can I ever come up against the limit of charity? Uh, The answer that St. Thomas gives is no. And he gives three reasons. And they're all awesome. First... God is infinitely generous. Second, we are infinitely capacious. And third, charity is infinite. So God is infinitely generous. He is always poised to give us a a deeper participation in charity to a wider extent. Also, the object of our minds is what is universally true. The object of our wills is what is universally good. As a result of which, we will not be sated by one particular concrete thing. Right. Like you go to the dining hall uh, or this place over here and you go to like Tandoor or Tan something. Tandoor. Yeah. And you're like, wow, that is the best curry that I've ever seen in my life. Like I could literally die and be completely content. And then you eat it. And then about like 26 minutes later, you're like, I could use a chocolate chip cookie right now. Right. (laughs) So like that concrete particular good, even though it kind of promises to answer to all your loves, doesn't because it's just one concrete particular good, and we're made for infinite good. We're made for what is infinitely true. And so we will not have rest until such time as we encounter an object that is sufficient to bear the weight of all our love, and that we find in God alone. So, charity is... So God is infinitely generous, we are infinitely capacious, and charity is infinite. It can always be participated, shared in more and more richly. It can always touch us uh, at a more and more, like, deep and probing level. And it can always extend to a wider and wider circle of influence. So then, okay, with that revelation, it's kind of nice and comforting if you know that there's an upper bound, right? You can only get, like, if your professor doesn't offer extra credit, you can only get 100%. So that means that you don't have to, like, have anxiety about 101%, right? So it's nice. It's kind of comforting to have an upper limit, right? But if there isn't an upper limit, like, when do you stop? right that's kind of terrifying it's like you mean this can go on forever it's like oh yeah okay um so then what are we responsible for like how how again does that not um you know end up crippling me or or just like making me very very nervous well we are responsible for referring our whole life's work our whole life's love to god so the text that's often cited in this regard is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, which is referred to as the Shema, Hero of Israel. That's a prayer that's recited in the morning and in the evening in the Jewish tradition, and it's often put in the mezuzah that they put on the, you know, the uh, lintel of their door, excuse me, the doorposts, uh, as a kind of reminder of God's covenant. So we are called to love the Lord God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is to say, refer everything in our life to God as its end. Such that when we choose which seat we sit in, it's by proximity to this person who may need a kind word. Or by proximity to this speaker who doesn't speak loud enough. But ultimately, it's to be enlightened by the words that he says so that I can grow in knowledge and I can grow in love. But ultimately, everything works towards God. And that's something, a habit that is, you know, kind of gradually acquired. Such that the one's whole life work becomes this kind of rising, surging crescendo unto the divine glory. And it just takes time. So how then do I gauge whether or not I'm on the right track? St. Thomas basically says, hope that you can grow. The only sin against it is to think that it is not possible because ultimately that says, God is not generous or I am not capacious or charity is not possible. And those are the only, those, that's the only choice that actually cuts you off from the divine generosity. Otherwise, that channel remains open and God proves himself liberal. He proves himself good. He proves himself, you know, just very, very generous. So will a higher state. Will a higher state. You are not condemned. You are not doomed to repeat the same sins over and over, even if they seem so deeply habituated as to haunt you all the livelong day. God is good, and he is generous. Okay, so next, can I actually rely on God to give me what I need to be perfect? Here again, we take solace in the testimony of Scripture. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. God desires that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. It doesn't say, like, God just desires that those at NC State and UNC be saved, okay? He's like, everybody in the triangle is going to be saved. He wants them to be saved, okay? So God desires that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. There's a 20th century Dominican theologian who says, at each moment of each day, God is giving to each at least the grace sufficient to pray. So that's not the grace of justification. That's not the grace of a wild and wonderful conversion. But it is the grace at least sufficient to pray, which, if consented to and cooperated, matures into greater and greater graces. So if I say yes to the desire to pray, then God will give more graces attendant on those. It's like how St. Augustine describes prevenient graces and subsequent graces, okay? And this is universally true. So in a document of the Second Vatican Council called Lumen Gentium, the council fathers write this, it is evident to everyone that all the faithful of Christ of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. That's big. He didn't say, they didn't say, that all the Christian of whatever rank or state are called to get in the back door of purgatory or are called to kind of like claw their way into heaven after many, many years or are called to like sneak by provided that they're not noticed. He says all of them are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. So it is not the exclusive or the otherwise, you know, like cordoned off privilege of a spiritual elite it is something addressed to all. God desires that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And what is more, the initiative is exercised by God. God is the principal protagonist of this saving work. So you can think of James 2. Every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. Or 1 Corinthians 4. Um, what do you have that you have not received? If therefore you have received it, why do you boast as if it were your own? Or 1 John 4. Beloved, we love because God first loved us. So this is the first point, and it's the first point of two. So it depends principally and primarily on the movement of God's grace, and God wants you to be perfect. Okay? It's good news. So then, our second and final point. How much grace can I rely upon God to actually give me? How much grace can I actually rely upon god to give me here we come up against what is often referred to in the tradition as the mystery of predilection okay now i'm going to describe it briefly it's going to sound terrible and then we're going to describe it some more it'll sound less terrible and then we're going to describe it again and it'll sound somewhat palatable okay so here we go this is the most terrible form god loves some people more than others god loves some people more than others Okay, <laughs> Okay. what do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? Is that actually a defensible claim? Well, I said it so clearly I intend to defend it, so here we go. Now, God is, again, in the kind of Thomistic conception, simple, which isn't to say that he's a simple ton, but it is to say that he is undivided or uncomplex. So God is his existence. He is his intellect. He is his act of understanding. So there's no, like, hemming and hawing or consent and deliberation. There just is God acting in and through himself from all eternity, unchanging. Now, part of God's knowledge of himself is his knowledge of all the ways in which creation can share in his life. And to those ways, he conjoins his will. To some of those ways, he conjoins his will, and creation emanates from God's choice. All right? So God creates by one simple act of love. There is no complexity of God. There is just one act whereby he is and knows and loves, and we are the fruit of his creative choice. That's not to say that we're necessary, like we just emanate from God by virtue of his nature, but it is to say that God is not like making discrete choices about whether or not like you have this, that, or the other kind of grace or whatever. It's just one simple act. So that's to say that God loves all people by the same act, so loves all equally under a certain aspect. But we have to contend with the fact that God gives some people more grace than others. Okay? God gives some people more grace than others. Grace is a share in the divine life. It's an evidence of his beneficence, his benevolence. That is to say, his love, his friendship, his charity, in a kind of uh, analogical sense, right? So God gives some greater gifts, and we can say as a result that from this perspective, he loves them more. Because, again, he's the protagonist of this work. He is the initiator. He is the one that makes them to flow from his abundance. Now, let's take some ones that we can all definitely agree upon. So think about the humanity of Jesus Christ. We can talk about the grace of Christ, Christ as infinite, and it's common to talk about it in the tradition as, as quasi-infinite. right? So the second person of the Trinity, the word proceeding from all eternity, takes to himself human flesh. That human nature is united to the person of the word. And that is a creation, right? And that requires grace. So there's a grace given to unite the human nature of Christ to the person of the word, what we call the hypostatic union. And that grace floods his soul with habitual grace. And then that grace is given to us through the church and in the sacraments what we refer to as as capital grace. But that is a grace in direct contact with the word. So we can say that that is the greatest grace imaginable, and it's not a grace to which you or I can aspire, right? When you're writing out your goals, you're like, okay, I want to um, come up with a cool 8- to 10-week program over the summer that someone else will pay for. Thank you, Gates Foundation. I want to um, graduate with honors. I want to get into a cool graduate program. You know, like I want to get married, have a family, go to heaven. Also, I want to become the incarnate word. Right? That never happens on your list making. Right? That's not something that we can actually desire because it doesn't fall within the compass of our nature ordinarily. Right? There is one incarnation and it's not ours. Right? So that's not like, I don't like resent the fact that Jesus has infinite grace and he didn't give me infinite grace. Like, what's the deal? That's like so unfair. It's like, no. Come on. Okay. Now let's, Christ, we can all agree about that. Let's ratchet it down. Think about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay? To her is afforded a very peculiar grace. The language is defended at the Council of Ephesus that she is truly the mother of God. And that takes grace. Divine maternity takes grace. You don't just wake up and you say, like, let's do this. Let's God bear today. (laughs) Nope. That is a vocation. Right? And so grace has to augment her nature in such a way that she can actually bear the weight of glory in her womb to give birth to the incarnate Son of God. She, her graces, pertain most immediately after those of Christ to the incarnate order, to that hypostatic mystery. Okay, So that's something that, again, we cannot aspire to. It wouldn't make sense. It would be self-defeating. Let's ratchet it down. Think of St. Joseph. St. Joseph is the most chaste spouse of the Virgin. He is the foster father of the incarnate Son of God. He is the universal patron and protector of the Church. He is referred to in his litany as... The terror of demons. Right. That takes grace. God makes him to be such by virtue of his predestinating gift. Not something to which we can aspire. Okay, ratchet it down again. Think of like your favorite saint. One of my favorite saints, Well, my favorite saint is St. Thomas Aquinas. My next favorite saint is probably St. Therese. Don't tell St. Dominic, okay. Um, so like St. Therese, Think of how very beloved she is in the universal church. Oftentimes you go into a church and you see the main altar and you're like, tabernacle, Jesus, makes sense. And then you look off to the left and there's a lady altar. You're like, blessed Virgin Mary, makes sense. And then you look off to the right, you're like, probably St. Joseph, am I right? Nope. It's St. Therese for some crazy reason in like 25% of churches that you go into. It's like, how did she like worm her way into so many hearts? It's incredible, right? But it makes sense because God loved her more. God loved her very much. And gave her an abundance of grace. Okay, another way that we can look at that is with respect to like a kind of gospel image. So think of uh, God's gift as a matter of intimacy with Christ. So to some people in the gospels, Christ addresses in a special call to be with Him. So the apostles, for instance, it says in Mark three that He called them to be with Him and to preach. But first, it is a matter of friendship. It's a matter of apostolic intimacy. But to others, He does not give that grace. So you can think of the healing of the garrison demoniac. He could not be bound by chains or shackles. So potent was the force within. And when that demon is cast forth, it invades a whole you know, herd of swine who then go hurtling headlong off a stony embankment and drown in the water. Like we're talking about big-time deliverance here. And then at the end of that scene, it says that the garrison demoniac comes up to the boat in which Jesus is embarking and asks to stay with him, to which Jesus responds, No like what that's like rule number one of campus ministry you don't turn people away you know like Jesus you are a bad campus minister you're know, like what are you thinking but here's the thing to some he affords the grace of this apostolic union and to others he does not and that is subject to his providential designs that is subject to his wisdom he holds counsel with himself he does not ask our advice for he needs it not so this again this should hopefully becoming more and more palatable. But you can see how this really, like, ultimately this conflicts with our democratic, our American ideal of equality, right? It's like all of us have equal access to Ford F-150s and, you know, like Lockheed Martin aviation and bald eagles and waving wheat, you know? So, like... So should everyone else, you know, like America, right? Um, We are just a people very passionate about equality. And whenever anyone says like one thing is better than another, we're like, prove it. And then I'll beat you up regardless, you know? Um, So we hate, we hate anything that smacks of elitism or pretension or condescension. It just like sounds gross. So why then is there a disparity? Why is there variation? Why is there this complexity in God's providential plan? Here's just the last point to bring home our second of two points. Well, it's because creation is for the manifestation of the glory of God. Recall that God needs nothing, does not act out of some kind of felt deficit. Rather, we are so many expressions of God's glory. God, we know, is simple. That's what we said. And so as a result, he cannot be exhausted by one created word. God couldn't create one super creature which encapsulates everything there is to say about him, right? It's like, I think here sometimes of the Jurassic Park movies, right? It just gets, like, more and more farcical. It's like, I'll make an incredible thing called the Indominus Rex. And then, like, they ran out of ideas for the most recent one. That's like, let's blend that with a raptor and call it an Indoraptor, right? So there's, like, no dinosaur out there that's going to say everything that need be said of God, regardless of how very complex its, like, DNA is, all right? God needs, in a certain sense, to express himself through many created words because no one created word actually exhausts the depth of divine life. So you can think about it this way. God is like white light, and that white light is passed through the prism of creation and refracted into a visible spectrum. So each created thing manifests the glory of God in unique ways. So the divine nature admits of these beautiful different expressions, This is what St. Therese intuited when she talks about the the different flowers in the field. Not all are roses. Some are violets and some are lilies and some are grape hyacinths and some are other things, you know. And that's good because it says something about God. It says something distinct. It says something beautiful. And you can think also in terms of the mystical body. St. Paul intuits this or he is, this is revealed, you know, in his kind of prophetic office of author of scripture. That the hand does not begrudge the eye that it cannot see or the eye begrudge the hand that it cannot feel. Each serves its place within the mystical body and redounds to the glory of the head. So, God gives some greater graces than others. God gives some greater graces than others as a way to demonstrate his overabounding life, to give testimony by many created words to the glory of God. And, This is true at the level of individuals. It's also true at the level of states. And here we could talk about religious life as a state of perfection, but I'm just going to bracket that. Um, So then we'll just finish with a concluding thought about, um, you know, like, is it, again, to return to our question, is it possible to be perfect? And here we can take solace in the words of St. Augustine. God gives what he commands and commands what he gives. God gives what he commands and commands what he gives. So I am responsible for what God entrusts me with. I am responsible for consenting to and cooperating with the graces that are actually given, not lamenting those graces that I have spoiled in the past or not lusting after those graces which may never be conceded, but rather responding to those graces which are actually here, now, and at the hour of my death. So I needn't lament the fact that I am not the greatest missionary or martyr. I am made to magnify the peculiar and personal grace that God gives to me. And here again, we can think about the parable of the talents. To some, God gives five talents. To some, God gives two. To some, God gives one. What remains to each is to be faithful, to consent to and cooperate in such way that his graces are made more and more manifest to those whom much is given, yet more will be given. Right? Right? So then, how am I called to pursue the perfection of charity? I am called to work in, a gra- work in accord with the grace that he has actually given. And this is already operative at the level of my identity, at the level of my desires, because creation is an indication or a pattern of redemption. God wouldn't make a blueprint and then scrap it and then redeem it in a completely different way. So God has given me desires that are essentially good. Do they stand in need of healing? Do they stand in need of purification? Should we adopt a kind of critique with respect to them, lest we be swept away by self deception, you better believe it. But by virtuous formation, and especially by growth in charity, those desires mature into my destiny. So oftentimes people ask like, what should I do with my life? To which I respond, like, You're asking me. Um but like a good way to begin is like, are you faithful? You know, do you frequent the sacraments? You know, do you make use of the helps God gives? Do you pray? Right? And people say, Yes, yes, yes. Then a good follow up question is What do you want? What do you love? What do you desire? And that's the kind of truest sense of the Augustinian dictum, to love God and do what you will. So, perfection is personal and free. Ultimately, it means that you manifest the glory of God in a way that only you are capable of doing, in accord with the graces that God actually gives, not in accord with the graces that you wish he had given. There are notes in the heavenly choir that only you can sing. There are hues and tints in the heavenly palette that only you can accent. God indicates your destiny and your flourishing by how he made you. He prompts you to pursue it by the desire which he breathed within you. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he accompanies you as you make strides to discern what exactly that is. For this command that I enjoin in you today is not too mysterious and remote for you. No, it is something very near to you, already in your mouths and in your hearts. You have only to carry it out. Thank you.